Well, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, I know you're probably expecting Ezekiel. Here's the thing. At Neil's encouragement, at Neil's uh, uh, suggestion, direction, uh, he, he suggested some time ago that I preach Philippians 3, 1 through 11 for Resurrection Sunday. And so I did, uh, and I really enjoyed it. And if I'm honest, I really just wanted to keep going. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get back to Ezekiel uh, next Sunday. But if you'll, if you'll pardon me, I just I kept reading what was in chapter 3, and I wanted to preach it, and you know I, I get to make that decision. So here we are. Uh, and so, beginning in verse 12, where we left off, Paul, writing to this church in Philippi to encourage them, and uh, actually, we're going to start, I'm going to start just for the sake of context. Um, I'll start in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. You remember what that means? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Going on to verse 12 in our text this morning. Not that I have already obtained this resurrection from the dead or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think in this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the Word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. I want to draw your attention. We won't have the the verse-by-verse bit up here on the screen. But I do want to draw your attention uh, if you've got a Bible open or if you've got a Bible on uh, your phone there. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think in this way, and I'm, I'm going to offer to you that that is the glue that holds a lot of the other parts of this text together, that Paul's target here that he's aiming for and trying to hit is Christian maturity, which is something that all of us should indeed aspire to, Christian maturity. Now, Paul says, not that I've already attained it, so I didn't say Christian perfection, but I did say Christian maturity. And as a sideline, as a, a kind of a, a item off to the side, I think it would do us some good in the future 
to talk about, maybe as a Wednesday night, I'm, I'm thinking about this, maybe after we do how to read the Bible, to, ha- to, to have a larger discussion about what the Bible uh, says about different areas of maturity. So, so think mental, spiritual, emotional, physical, kind of these four realms where we can grow as people and as brothers and sisters together. I think a lot of times we do a, a good job emphasizing what it means to grow in spiritual maturity or in maturity of knowledge and intellect. Emotional maturity, I think we struggle with uh, as, as Christians. We, we kind of think, well, if I know enough, sort of the other areas of maturity will just catch up. That really hasn't proven true, though, uh, through history. But one of the most uh, important things here in this text, then, is this drive that Paul has to become mature. To, and that, that's an ongoing process, by the way. More on that in a moment. But to, to, to pursue maturity. And I'm going to give you at least five things in this text, and then we're going to kind of talk about them broadly. But there are at least five things in this text that, that illuminate for us a definition of what Christian maturity is or what it looks like. So if you'll, if you'll start back with me in verse 12, the first thing is Christian maturity is knowing that there's work ahead in you and in others. That there's work that remains to be done. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. One of the most well-known things about human beings is that we are imperfect. Nobody would have trouble admitting that. And in Christianity, we have a doctrine called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. Basically, the idea is that over the whole course of your Christian life, you will learn more and more of what Jesus and the apostles taught. You will more and more apply it to your life. You will more and more see uh, besetting sins put to death as you grow in grace and faith. This is what Jesus talked about in the Great Commission, right? So you, you go into all the nations, right? you, you baptize them, uh, you teach them to do all I've commanded. Now I don't know if you know this, but teaching everything that Jesus did and commanded probably is going to take longer than a single baptismal service. Right? In fact, it's going to take all of life as you continually are returning back again and again to the Scriptures, and as it were, discovering corners of your life where, at least in practice, functionally speaking, it doesn't seem that Jesus is Lord, and bringing those things in submission to Him. Indeed, the word disciple just means learner. And we never advance past that. Paul is here summarizing what growth in the Christian life is like. It is pressing on to make the faith our own based on the reality that Jesus Christ has made us His own and you don't get those confused. It's not I press on to, to, to do a bunch of things and then finally maybe Jesus will make me His own. I mean, look at the language of the text. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus, past tense, has made me His own. So notice which one comes first. It doesn't start with you doing enough, being enough, loving enough, singing enough, praying enough. It starts with Jesus Christ who is enough and He has called you His own. It's like we just sang, right? Only hope in life and death. 
This is where we must start. The realization that you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself. And that means more when we talk about becoming a Christian. Then that means more than, than praying a, a specific prayer. Like perhaps you've heard of like the sinner's prayer or having a kind of conversion experience. It is the reality that Jesus has made you His. And so now, your mission is pressing that reality into every corner of life. Jesus has risen from the dead, and so this resurrection life, this resurrection power that Paul talked about in verse 10 and verse 11 is now, is now pressed into every corner. So what do I mean by every corner of life? I mean stuff looks different now that Jesus is king. Okay, So your marriage... Your diet, your finances, your education, your retirement, your free time, your work. The Christian life is not a life that just says, well, okay, I I believe in Jesus, so I'll give assent to that proposition. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Check. Yes. And then, really for all intents and purposes, the rest of life looks not all that different from the rest of the world. Rather, the Christian life is a life that presses on, presses in to see what it means, to discover what it means in every corner of life that, that this, this whole thing is under the lordship and rulership and ownership of this resurrected king. So a question I want to start with then this morning for you to think on this afternoon and this week is do you know the work ahead? So, not that I've already obtained it or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Okay? So, do you know in your own life what that pressing on looks like? If I asked you, just as a place to start, what are the three primary sins that right now are knocking you down? Could you tell me? And would they be really pathetic, non-threatening things? Like, oh, you know, my greatest sin, that's probably just that I, I want to be loved too much. I just care about people too much, you know. My greatest sin is I get really annoyed with people in traffic. Well, let me get the anointing oil. We're going we're gonna to make it. It's going to be okay. No, no, I mean, I mean really, like, like what, what is it at the root? What is, what's the pride that's consuming you? The lust that's consuming you? The, the unbelief? that continually is knocking you down. Why does this matter? Because your faith and the worship of Jesus Christ, the resurrected King of the universe, has to be your own. Did you notice that? Right? I press on to make it my own because Jesus Christ has made me His own. So your faith has to be your own. It is certainly something that you inherit. Perhaps from your family, at least from, say, spiritual forefathers, at the very least from the apostles. And so it is handed down to you in that sense. But it must be your own. It must be your own confession, your own faith, your own practice in your life, your own sense that you are not your own. So that's what is first. Second, Christian maturity is forgetting what lies behind. So the first one is, is knowing what lies ahead, having a sense of what lies ahead, knowing the areas of work where there is to be done, knowing, knowing the renovation that still has to happen. Second, forgetting what lies behind. Paul says in verse 13, One thing I do, 
Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So there is a Christ-centered, Spirit-filled... I I hesitate to use the word mindfulness because that word gets tossed around in some really odd and interesting ways today. But, but But let's just say awareness. There is an awareness of where I still have yet to go. And there is also an intentional forgetfulness. Why does Paul say this? Forgetting what lies behind. Why does he have to bother with that? Probably because Paul knows that nothing can hinder the Christian life quite like an obsession with the past. Some are, in a sense, imprisoned by the sins of their past. Paul could have been certainly you remember earlier in our text from last week when he gives his spiritual resume and there's that one bit as to zeal a persecutor of the church, right? Certainly Paul had things he could and, and did deeply regret and those things, if you've been a Christian for more than I'd say a year, you know how your past can begin to take large ownership, right? It's like uh, Christ has made me his own or I am... I am owned by, imprisoned by the things in my past. Some are imprisoned by their failures or their disappointments, which is different from being imprisoned by your sins, by the way. and, And maybe it's an arbitrary distinction, but walk with me for just a second. Christians, by and large, we know what to do with our sins, right? Jesus forgives those, so we know what to do with those. We get our, right, we have our sins, I I know what to do with my sins. I bring them to Jesus. I hear that I'm forgiven. Right? But your enemy, the devil, is really clever, and I think one of his best tricks is getting you to make this hard distinction between your sins, which Jesus forgives, and your failures, which you just kind of bear. Right? So your sins are for Jesus to forgive, but your failures are just there to slowly crush you and rob you of any confidence or any hope. Some are also imprisoned by the, um, I, would, I would say, in, in a sense, imprisoned by the blessings in their past. Some season in life that was especially happy, especially fun, especially exciting. And all of life becomes about trying to get back there, right? Rather than trusting God and looking forward to what lies ahead, Paul says. Paul, in a way, could have been vulnerable to something like that, I think. He gave that list, remember, of all of his accomplishments. And what did he call the list of all his past accomplishments, right? Rubbish, scubalon, right? The purpose of your past, the purpose of your past is to tell the story of God's faithfulness. Okay? So you've got a testimony, and a big part of it is telling the story of God's faithfulness to you. Beware of any other story that your past is telling you. Beware of any other sermon you're preaching to yourself with that story. More and more, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of Christians and a lot of churches are devoid of, of joy, of gladness, or of authority because they believe the hopeless stories they've written rather than the stories of a resurrected, death-defeating God who's on their side. And so, what's, what's the next thing that Paul says? The third thing. Pressing forward. So not just forgetting what lies behind, but pressing forward to what lies ahead. So that first bit is a, is a present aspect. I, I am pressing on to make it my own. 
And then, what? okay, so that's what, you, that's what you're doing now in the present. What do I do with my past, right? Forgetting what lies behind. How do, I, how do I look at my future? Pressing on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's really interesting about that, this pressing on, it is the same verb. We've seen this verb before in chapter 3. If you go back, this is crazy, to verse 5. Okay? Tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, as the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. A presser, you might say. It's the same verb. A persecutor of the church. A pressing forward to the goal. Right? It's, actually, it's actually the same verb. What's going on there? It reminded me of a very mysterious text in Matthew chapter 11. I'm going to jump over there now. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So there's a good little trivia question for you. Greatest prophet of the Old Covenant, John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Not trying to have time to unpack the complexity of that kind of odd-sounding verse, but, but to try to get at what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of, uh, of God suffers violence and the violent, the those pressing in take it by force. I, I, I'm offering to you that he is getting at the very same thing Paul is getting at here. What Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what Christianity says about the Christian life is that it is caused by and results in a kind of spiritual ferocity, an intensity of focus. It's, it's, it's the intensity of focus where you realize that, that this gospel is worth everything, right? And so it's why in Christian history, sometimes conversion is, is often associated with the uh, uh, picture or concept of surrender, because it's like, well, why, why, why wouldn't I surrender to this king who loves me, who has died for me, who's resurrected and has promised me that resurrection life in the new day? It's that intensity of focus that first grips you as a Christian. As you grow up learning Christianity, this intensity of focus that surrounds all of life, but then also that, that presses into life as you live it, right? There's a kind of, I would call it spiritual aggressiveness. And why shouldn't there be? We're talking about a God who raises dead men to life. So the spiritual life is a kind of fight. It's a kind of war. We speak of spiritual warfare for a reason because all of the Christian life is about this intense and holy pursuit, which is, by the way, its own kind of encouragement because you are either at peace with God or you're at peace with your sin. You can only have one. You're either at war with your sin or you're at war with God. Right? And so... If you are presently 
at war with your sin and it feels like a bloody war and it's really hard and you've taken some hits and you've got to keep on coming and it hurts and it feels like there's war in your spirit, that's a good thing. That is not a bug, that's a feature. You're not struggling to be free. You've been made free, so go struggle. Go fight. It's part of why gathered corporate uh, covenant renewal worship is so important because who goes to war by themselves a dead man (laughs) lone mercenaries do not win wars armies do that's what we are doing when we gather together each week we're picking up the battering ram we're singing our war songs and assaulting the gates of death and hell confident that those things are coming down so paul says Pressing on toward the goal, the prize, the upward call in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Fourth, Christian maturity is not overthinking it. Not overthinking it. Listen to that encouragement. Let those of us who are mature think this way. That sounds kind of like a high and heavy calling. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. He's been good enough to give you the gospel. You think now he's going to keep away something that you need to know? God is not slow to reveal sin. This verse always makes me think of Martin Luther, who was so oppressed by the fear of unrecognized and therefore unconfessed sin, that he was, quite frankly, just a burden to his father confessor. Just coming to him all the time with every little sin he could think of. Then he'd be on his way out the door and he'd think of like five more. And, right? and, and so, you know, because he was, he, was, he was confident that if he missed anything, it'd be the end of him. And we kind of chuckle at that. But I think that for a lot of Christians today, the same kind of thinking sneaks in. When suffering comes, when tragedy strikes, what, do, what, what sometimes do you hear? You hear, well, I know God is teaching me something. I sure hope I figure out what it is so that all of this will stop. Where exactly is it written that suffering is God's riddle and it's your responsibility to solve it and only when you get the right answer will the pain stop. I don't think it's written there. That, that's not sanctification, by the way. That's interrogation with torture. What Paul does here is brilliant because he knows that any picture of the Christian life is going to involve struggle and work and pursuit and energy, the stuff he's talking about here. It'll involve sweat and fighting, and it will inevitably overburden the consciences of some in the room. And so, for those of you who might fit such a description, you you hear this language about pressing on into Christian maturity, and you're thinking, well, what if there's something then in, in my past? I don't realize that I'm not letting it go. I'm not forgetting it properly, if you like. What if there's something in my present that's keeping me from pressing forward, and I, just, I don't realize it, I don't see it? Paul says, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. So get this fundamental principle then. There is plenty in your life that the Lord chooses not to reveal or tell you. 
But he's rather quick to answer your prayer for greater light to see your own sin if you've got the courage to pray for that. Right? Fifth and finally, Christian maturity is holding to the truth. Look at verse 15. Uh, excuse me. 16. Only, only, let us hold true to what we have attained. Lest we mistake the metaphor of movement that Paul's using here as always moving on to the next thing, whatever it is. Uh, you know, the newest, newest idea, newest invented idea of spirituality, for example, that's not what pressing forward means. It means, in this sense, holding fast to what God has given us in His Word. And it is a matter of, of if you like, drilling down deeper into that reality. This is, and, then, and then this call to imitation. Do you remember it? Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those, so not just me, but those who walk according to the example you have in us. I talked a bit about this last Sunday. This verse kind of troubles us sometimes because on, on, on the one hand, it just sounds arrogant. Like a, a lot of Christians today do not talk this way. To just say, okay, if you want to see what it means to be a Christian, just, just keep an eye on me. And, and there's an us there as well. It's, it's not just, Paul's not saying I'm the only example you've got. Uh, Paul planted a church in Philippi. He organized, they had elders. So he knew that there were plenty of examples to work with, for, for instance, at this church. And so, one reason we struggle with this, I think, is because we, we tend to assume that any confident acknowledgement of our gifts or of our growth in grace might be pride. And, and look, there can be a danger of pride there. But Paul's example is, funnily enough, a really instructive example, <laughs> worthy of imitation. He's not afraid to say, imitate me. Well, what does he mean? Well, like, what, what does it mean to imitate Paul? Which parts of his life is he calling them to imitate? I would submit to you, at the very least, the ones he's been talking about in chapter 3. The, the five aspects that I just went through for you of Christian maturity. Paul is saying, put these things into your life. Uh, commentator, uh, the, the commentators that I consulted uh, when I was looking at this text, in, indeed, say you can start with Philippians chapter 1 and just start working your way through all of, all of the things that Paul's expressing about his own wrestling and, and struggling and pursuit of joy. And it, that's, all, that's all baked into this, this imitate me. But there's a second reason why I think this kind of language is hard for us. It is that I think we tend to assume that all any Christian really needs to grow in grace is, is my own brain and my own Bible and minding my own business. The, the idea that we would actually need other Christians for, in this case, for the purpose of imitation, I think sometimes is foreign to us. The idea that we would actually need a fellowship and a body. The idea that we would need both accountability and examples for instruction might seem odd to us because we're such American radical individualists. We think that spiritual growth is mostly engaging in private spiritual activities consistently. And that's an important part of spiritual growth that I would never want you to leave out of your Christian life. But Jesus made disciples by telling them to follow Him. Right? So, so 
Watch me imitate me. That's what Jesus did. So, and then he got a group of them together so that they could start doing that. And it was rocky. At first. I don't know if you remember, but it was hard going. So as it turns out, we really do need each other in this kingdom project if we're going to make it. You're called to be around faithful believers, to spend time with them, to notice the stuff they're good at, by the way. And, and maybe it's stuff that you're not good at. Maybe it's stuff you really stink at. And, and so then the point there is not for you to look over it at other people, I mean, say in this congregation, and say, you know, wow, I mean, God has really blessed them with, oh, with faith and, I mean, kindness. They're so kind and, and generous. Oh, man, they, they just they take good care of their neighbors and, the, and their friends and family. Oh, they're, I mean, so patient, right? There were some times where I made them mad and they just kind of bounced back and they were so forgiving. <sighs> I guess that's just not my personality. What? No, like they're there for your example, for your instruction, for your help, for your growth. What happens to those who have no model for imitation? Paul tells us in the next verse. For many of whom I've often told you and tell you now, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. With minds set on earthly things. Remember, Earlier in the text, he told them where to set their minds. And then said, uh, that is verse 15, let those of us who are mature think in this way. If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Having no one to imitate usually means you're in isolation. Isolation is not good for your spiritual health, to put it th- just to put it very, very simply. Now, all, uh, now, we, we, we believe here, certainly, that all of God's elect people will most certainly persevere unto the end. And that is why God makes certain of that by growing them in grace and faith over the course of life. The idea that all we have to do is set you up with some kind of salvation experience and then you're good. Right? So we can move on to other people, other things. That is one of the chief causes of so much apostasy and unbelief today. We teach people how to believe an idea, but not how to press on in the faith. That's discipleship. And here's the thing. People will always, without exception, in life, press on in some kind of direction, right? And so it is either that you are Led by your impulses, or you are led by God Himself. Right? So, I mean, if you look back to the text, their God is their belly. That doesn't mean that they really like to eat, though for some of them it might mean that. The, the, uh, the idea is there that uh, to, to, to speak of their God is their belly, He's saying that their, their God is their impulses. The, whether it's the, the urge for hunger, so I'm just going to. You know, I'm just going to eat right now. Like, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm immediately just going to go eat. That's why he uses the metaphor, their, their God is their belly. Their God is whatever their next impulse or desire is. That's the idea. And so it is that you are either driven by your next impulse or you are driven by the Word of God as you press on toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. Their God is their belly means that they are ruled by the physical impulses and pleasures happening right now. 
So what hope does he give? Therein is destruction, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, this is why we confess our hope in the resurrection of the dead, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power, the same power He talked about in verses 10 and 11, that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. This is the power of the resurrected Christ that is given freely to His people to, tr- to change them. The reality that your citizenship is in heaven, that you are awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in accordance with the promises of God, and that Jesus Christ on the last day will finally put the last enemy death under His feet, and you will be raised to new resurrection existence. What I want to say about that is that the power for change is one of the things that too often we are like afraid to believe in. So, I mean, don't put it this way. What kind of indwelling sin is the strongest? Some might say it's the impulse for money or lust or power or just selfishness. But what, what kind of indwelling sin is the strongest? I would submit to you, it is the one that you have convinced yourself will never change or be changed or altered in any way, shape, or form. The one that you have convinced yourself is static, immovable, unchangeable. Oh wait, those are things we used to describe God. The resurrection of Jesus is the overcoming of death. It is the promise that one day, death itself will be one of the enemies that dies. D.A. Carson says, uh, People have continuously warned us that there is a danger in being so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. You've heard that before. That does not strike me as an imminent danger in our generation. The fact of the matter is, many of us are so earthly minded, we're good for neither heaven nor earth. It is remarkable how many of us believe that the Lord Jesus Christ can destroy death, but He can't heal our marriages. The Son of God can be resurrected, but He can't affect my grumpiness. God can create the planets, but He can't do a thing about my anger. The Almighty Sustainer of every molecule of oxygen can do all things well except liberate me from anxiety that owns me. By the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Christ, our King, is conquering this world. He is bringing all things into subjection under Himself. Trust not your eyes on this score, beloved. And certainly, don't trust your news outlets. He is putting all His enemies under His feet. His own resurrection power, amen, gives you, gives you what you are too afraid to hope for. 
actual change and transformation that means to press into all the corners of life. And so, let's continue to fight together. Sing together. In a moment, to feast together. As we press on toward the call, toward the upward call in Christ Jesus. Amen. Our Father, we thank oh. <laughs> Thank you. I receive that as encouragement. I receive that as the encouragement it's meant to be. Father, thank you so much for the confident hope that we have because of the resurrected Christ. Not because of our own strength, not even because of the strength of our faith, but rather because of the one who is the object of our faith, who is keeping us, and who by his power is bringing all things into subjection to himself. So on this score, Lord, let us not trust our eyes, but let us continue to fight together, to sing together, and to feast together as we continue to plead, not as a curious hope, but as a confident expectation that your kingdom will come and your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let it be. Amen.